All right, everyone. Hello and welcome to another episode of Culture Calls Dialing into the Future, where we discuss everything on culture. Uh, today, we are in conversation with Harry Sewell. Uh, Harry is a writer and speaker in his specialist area of social justice, equality, race, and culture in mental health. Harry is an honorary senior visiting fellow at the University of Central Lancashire and special guest lecturer at the University of Bradford. He's a visiting lecturer at Christchurch Canterbury University and is a member of the scientific board of the ESRC Center for Society and Mental Health. Harry is a proud member of the council at the British Association for Social Workers. Um, and absolute delight to have you on our show, Harry. How are you feeling today? Yeah, good. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks. Um, it's an honor to be part of the show. Thank you for the invitation. Fantastic. Um, uh, you know, before we even get into, you know, uh, all the questions that I do have lined up for you, uh, can you tell us, the audience, a bit about yourself and what you're currently pursuing? Yeah, sure. So um, my background is in social work and, um, you know, it's kind of very foundational to what I do. I, um, in my first role as a social worker, had a split role, which was partly community development, um, working with the African Caribbean, the black community in a particular part of the United Kingdom, as well as just kind of being a social worker and a community mental health team carrying a diverse range of cases. And it's foundational because it meant right from the beginning of my career in the sector, I had an orientation which was around seeing people as located in contexts, not just as individuals with a presenting problem and that's just informed my work so you know over the years I've worked in the sector largely in strategic managerial roles though I have done some operational management and alongside that developed an interest based on that first role I described working with the black community developed this interest in the causes for the inequalities that seem to be so persistent and still remain so in mental health, but in other aspects of our social world, and began to read and research and eventually began to write and be published in that field. So largely now I'm seen as someone who offers a critique, not just of the inequalities based on racialized identities and mental health, but also in the workforce and in society more generally. So that's largely what I do. So for the last 14 years, I have been working independently pursuing those interests supporting organizations with my tagline really of you know, seeking to disrupt those things that we, I guess, imbibe and assume in an uncritical way. I try and create critical thinking and raising critical consciousness as Paolo Ferreira in pedagogy of the oppressed would describe it. That's my work to disrupt with gentleness though. That is fantastic. and. Uh... You know, uh, all, I, all, all I can see right now is your immense work and diversity in the amount of fields that you work in and the amount of, uh, you know, clients and the amount of topics that you've handled. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, doubling down on that thing yourself, you have seen a lot of uh, work culture, you know, in different environments and in uh, different companies. So how do you see work culture evolving, you know, especially in this hybrid and remote work culture, which is, you know, probably looking to stay for a while right now. Uh, how do you see work culture evolving in this environment? Yeah, well, I guess the culture in organizations to a large extent reflects the cultures in our societies. And there is a dominant culture in the global society 
uh, which still tends towards hierarchical methods of decision making and setting the cultures in organizations and more consensual approaches are I guess attempted in individual settings but are often difficult to pursue largely because we kind of operate within regulatory systems and rightly so so you know we have a regulator for the system that you know holds individual providers and commissions of services to account set standards and ensure that those standards are being attained as far as is possible so the culture still is that dominant one of okay you know we've got these accountability measures we need to meet and once you have that in place there will be the constant um pursuing of the criteria that means you will meet the standards it's kind of understandable um so the things that are given priority in that context are then going to be reflected in what's given priority in the organization so if the regulator emphasizes financial management and strong leadership then of course an organization will invest in good financial management and leadership so the culture as it's evolving is still pretty in my view rigidly fixed in that command and control approach i name that because um my critique of that comes from the kind of writings of feminists who will say what we're actually seeing is the replication of approaches that we might see in the military, you know, and other institutions that rely on a command and control structure. And either explicitly or implicitly, we absorb those approaches into our systems. And though we try and operate loosely with them, they still leave their imprint. So I'm interested in indigenous knowledges and kind of feminist perspectives that would say, or perhaps there are other ways of accessing the talents and the ways in which people think creatively. So that's it, really. Um, the cultures are evolving to be more consensual, but I think that that rod of rigidity around command and control is still there. Um, and what the pandemic has done with the flexible working has imposed upon us a rethink, um, which is now creating um, you know, an opportunity for more diverse uh, voices to be heard in the debate about what works in an organisation. So the idea that you turn up and you're partly measured on being present as opposed to your output, you know, that's shifting quite rapidly. And that increased flexibility where people don't have to be seen, um, you know, at their desk between nine to five means that if people are working at home and they can actually put their laundry out to dry on the line rather than using their electricity to run a tumble dryer or wherever it is, um, then, you know, people are now affording themselves that opportunity to blend home and work life if it's really really sunny and you live near to beach and you think well actually I could kind of just go out and have a lunchtime swim at you know two o'clock in the afternoon when it's hot rather than going down at half five before you go to work or getting back at sunset it's you know these kind of freedoms um mean that people's relationship with work is changing um because it's now possible to blend work and um you know your, your social life or your personal life more effectively for some okay. and i have to underscore it that you know there is a degree of elitism largely you know those people who undertake roles that enable them to work at home and aren't fixed in locations um there are particular jobs that lend themselves to that and it does create a separation right and and you know i completely agree with um, with how uh, the flexibility gives not only the company, but also the people working there, 
the freedom to choose how exactly they can work. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's also doubling down on the advent of how technology has grown um, in all these times and how technology is helping, uh, you know, build that flexibility. Uh, so, I, you know, I think uh, my next question would be something very similar. So do you think data and technology play a key role uh, in determining organization culture? Because we just spoke about how, uh, you know, uh, uh, the advent of technology and the price of freedom is also, uh, you know, uh, available everywhere. So do you think data and technology play a key role, both for an employee and an employer in determining organizational culture? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess I have to preface, I will answer that question, but I have to preface it again with a broader critique. Of course, one of the consequences is that, um, you know, tech organizations have made a huge fortune out of the pandemic um, because, of course, we need you know better technology. You know, I had old computers that couldn't manage to host Teams and um, Zoom on the same device and to be working effectively. I had dropouts, so I had to buy more kit. Um, you know, I can see people with headsets. Um, you know, people have got many more devices. Um, and there's a consequence because um, there's a, a cost of the environment, you know, in using things like cobalt um, mining from the Democratic Republic of Congo um, and kind of consequences uh, around our trading laws that create further inequalities whilst the tech companies might be becoming wealthier. These countries aren't really thriving um, off this. So, you know, there is that critique. People often think our, our data is in the cloud, but of course there are physical places where we're kind of storing this data. And again, that has a cost in the environment too. So there are consequences. It isn't just something to be celebrated. But um, one of the things that is afforded um, by you know, teleworking is this ability to interact in a broader way and to include more diverse uh, voices from around the world. So we can get indigenous people involved in conferences in the UK. Um, by sending a link and, you know, if we're paying someone a uh, fee, you know, pay the fee and they're there. Um, we don't have the hotel costs and the flight costs and the impact on the environment, but we can be more inclusive of these diverse uh, voices. And I'm seeing that in my work. And I think that's something to be celebrated, uh, definitely. So it creates inclusivity. Um, and again, you know, if people want early meetings and, you know, there might be, um, you know, parents or you know guardians of children or even other carers um who are trying to work around school it's possible maybe to get onto a meeting online a lot sooner than kind of doing the school run or you know going and doing a caring visit to an older relative and getting back to an office so it's kind of you know allowing a bit more flexibility around that so in terms of harvesting data there is the intellectual knowledge that is distributed i keep coming back to this notion that even though we think that the elite in an organization have the power for decision-making, actually the people that really inform sound decisions are those people either in the community or in the workforce with this dispersed knowledge, but are closer to the issues that are surfacing. And the more we can access that knowledge, the richer the decision-making will be. In my work specifically now, um, you know, as an example, thinking about the experience of minoritized people in the workforce, that ability to have several meetings online, um, maybe in different locations, if there's an organization that has a large footprint, um, maybe offices, the estate might be 
dispersed across a geographical location. Um, it means I could meet with different regions or different sites all in the same day. I could even have four meetings in the same day online. Whereas if I had to go different places across the same county to arrive, set up and host meetings, at best I could achieve two. Often it would just be kind of going to one location and then that would be the day. So it means we can kind of gather more of that intelligence, um, which then becomes data. And I guess a lot of what I've just been, and I'll just, this is my last point on it, that I'm trying to underscore is that whilst we think of tech as driving this, as I said before, there's a physical place where this data is held. There is an embodied force behind the data that people at some point are going to be shaping, informing, harvesting the data. And I kind of think it's really helpful for us to keep that balance of awareness that the tech is a useful part of it, but actually people are still driving that. The intelligence um, is coming from us, even creating algorithms um, that we use. Someone has to do that, um, you know, creation of the technology to enable the algorithms to be captured. So that's what I celebrate in my work is the human side of it. Um, but yeah, obviously there's a lot of data and you know we're becoming more sophisticated at understanding things, for example, around workforce um, patterns and promotions in disciplinary action, um, or even indicators of other cultures about you know, who gains access to training and learning and development opportunities within an organization compared with those who don't. And you know, we're capturing data like that through you know, um, staff surveys and you know, workforce surveys. Um, so yeah, again, that's an example of where we're harvesting data. Um, and then we can kind of have a supposedly empirical look at patterns in the workforce to inform our strategies going forwards. I, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, was able to take a few points, which I, I didn't know where would make sense. You know, we always speak about technology from the user end, uh, but we never fail to realize that what we use is, uh, there's a lot of work that goes behind it. Um, and the, uh, especially the, you know, we, we were at the point where you told that it's all there on the cloud, but there are physical servers who are actually uh, handling that and that needs people to be built on. Uh, and I absolutely agree to that. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm just thinking if we're both here at uh, understanding uh, a lot more about your career. You've worked a lot in, you know, building diversity, equity and inclusion as a practice in a lot of uh, organizations. So uh, I want to understand what, according to you, uh, does a truly diverse organization mean? Uh, what comprises of a truly diverse organization? Because I see that a lot of people are, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and not really understanding what exactly it means. And they're all uh, trying to get into it. But what truly does a diverse organization mean? Okay, great. Um, so a lot of organizations now are speaking the language of belonging. Do people actually feel as though they belong, which is linked to the, the inclusion part of either diversity, equality and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion. And um, they all kind of you know, try and capture the same thing. Simply put, it is possible to have an organization that um, is diverse, significantly diverse. Um, and you could have everyone who has a manager in their title out of a thousand in the workforce being white and hetero and um, male. Um, so you could have every single manager looking like that. And then, you know, the other 
percentage might be mixed with you know a whole range of diversities and you could say overall the organization is really diverse um, but it wouldn't reflect diversity at all levels and inclusion for example in access to the systems of power and the positions where decision making really has a massive influence on the organization so that whole banner of edi um i think often confuses people because we say yeah we're kind of trying to achieve diversity but diversity in and of itself um isn't an end goal for the reasons i've said is that there is an issue about distribution who's where you know if you've got 90 percent of your cleaners are from ethnically diverse backgrounds but that's not reflected in the seniority of the organization what it actually does it confirms a belief in the minds of the workforce that this is the kind of work that these people do so if there is someone of a racialized background who attempts to get a manager job they're doing that against the background of this unconscious belief based on what people are seeing every single day that the kind of work people who look like you do is hoovering and cleaning the toilets um and somewhere in the minds that remains and you know in the studies of unconscious bias you know we refer to that as the availability heuristic um that becomes people's truths whether they realize it or not so there is a problem it is actually in some ways counterintuitive if achieving just diversity is actually a way of reinforcing the stereotypes about who does what kind of role um so inclusion in that goes back to my point about what well, are people included in all aspects in the seniority and decision making um and are people able to be included as themselves um france van in his book black skin white mask described that phenomena of people of color wearing a mask of whiteness in order to gain access to more privileged positions or acceptability in society or in an organization and um you know the question is are staff from diverse backgrounds whatever aspect of identity we're referring to it doesn't just have to be around racialized identities it could be a gender identity it could be um, around sexual orientation are people having to wear the mask of the dominant culture in order to feel accepted and if so we create the illusion of diversity almost just the embodiment of it but not the actuality of it because people are literally just surrendering to the dominant culture um, and that's a problem. So the key test really uh, in organizations is to try and establish using as many mechanisms like staff surveys to find out from people whether or not they really feel able to come and be their true selves and therefore to kind of contribute from that richness of diversity. Um, and sometimes you need affinity groups to do that, you know, groups where you've got people who feel they have an affinity with people who have a shared characteristic with them, who feel open and able to speak about the things that are on their minds um so i guess a truly diverse organization is one that would do that create spaces where people can begin to say whether or not they feel truly included and belong and if not what are the barriers and what needs to be done and to harvest that information to use that to shape the culture of the organization so that people can be their true selves as opposed to code switching and becoming consistent with some perceived dominant norm Right. Uh, you know, I absolutely agree to that. And uh, I really loved the perspective that you had to bring on what exactly does it uh, take uh, to become a truly diverse organization. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, 
uh, a lot of companies are realizing the value that uh, having a diverse workforce and having a diverse workplace is not only in terms of having you know the morality of it but also uh, you know in building the actual future uh, that they're trying to have so you know uh, what according to you should be the first step you know that an employer should take and what is your biggest advice for uh, for an employer to get started with uh, dei how exactly should be step one for starting with diversity equity and inclusion i think um the introduction of two frameworks i can name specific frameworks um it doesn't need to be these two but it relates to the two types of approaches and the first step should be this dovetailing of these two perspectives one is to normalize conversations about difference um so we could use non-violent communication as a framework um to acknowledge that by definition if you create true diversity you will introduce grit it's it seems surprising but because people expect there to be diversity and harmony that harmony won't evolve in and of its own accord because the whole point about us being diverse is that we see and experience the world in different ways and therefore there are going to be points of rub and um you know contradiction and grit as i call it um so rather than be surprised and respond retrospectively there's real benefit in organizations saying once we introduce diversity we're bound to kind of have these you know at worst adversarial encounters but as a minimum there's going to be this grit so let's plan for it and you know see what the oil is to kind of help smooth those things out so you know having nonviolent communication as a framework means people can talk about their hurts or their different perspectives in a held way so it doesn't just descend into adversarial positions of accusation and counter accusation but people can kind of have consensual conversations where the goal isn't just to correct um but to connect you're trying to kind of create a connection because that connection is the birthplace of possibility so that then needs to be dovetailed with work on listening and the second so i mentioned nonviolent communication from marshall rosenberg um otto sharma um a colleague in the loosest terms um he he uh, was in fact on my first podcast seasoning the reasoning podcast and we had this fantastic conversation around um, you know, a lot of his work, including the four levels of listening. And that is, for me, the um, you know, other thing that is really essential. Otto Sharma's work, The Essentials of Theory U, documents the four levels of listening. Um, the first level um, is, in a way, the kind of weakest level, which he refers to as downloading, where we're listening, but in our minds, we already think we kind of have a sense of what the story is going to be. So we've already kind of downloaded it. And I summarize it by saying, most of us recognize it when we're talking to people and they're nodding emphatically and sometimes they'll finish our sentence and in our heads we're thinking that's not actually what i was gonna say but but they've kind of they're downloading because they kind of already think they know and that's not true listening and we kind of go through four levels where we get to generative listening so this kind of second one is kind of specifically listening for disconfirming information and then you kind of you know that's what Otto would say is look act of science is that we're forever saying all right this is what I think but let me just see whether or not there's anything there that might disprove my belief and that's a real shift in how we listen and then we kind of get to the fourth I've jumped over the third we get to the fourth which is generative listening um, and that is where the intention of the listening is to generate something new and it becomes a challenge to our identities 
because we've been socialized, all of us, to see the world in a particular way, shaped by our family and our cultural influences. And that becomes our truth about the way the world is. And generative listening, if we're really trying to create something new from that process, means people are going to say things that we initially kind of think, oh, yeah, but I wonder if that's a jaded view or will that work? And you know, to put those aside and say, actually, let me engage with it like from the inside of your experience and it can be challenging but that disruption which is what I talk about is again the birthplace for real transformation because you're now thinking well there are parts of knowing that were outside of my reach just because of my individual experience um, so generative listening along with non-violent communication for me would be the starting point for organizations to be more transformative um you know i'm out of words thank you so much for joining us Harry. and uh, i was able to learn a lot today and i think our listeners were able to learn a lot as well and uh, i think the first steps that you did tell for the i should should be uh, listening and learning as to what exactly uh, your employees want and what exactly the people uh, want and not just uh, being what you want uh, I love that. And thank you so much for joining us. Is there any final words that you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, I just would say um, it takes, and this is a quote, I can't attribute it, um, that it is uncomfortable um, being uncomfortable all the time. But when we become comfortable with being uncomfortable, amazing things happen. Wow, that is that is fantastic. Thank you so much, Harry, for joining us. And hey, thank you all for listening until the end. And uh, we will see you again next time. Make sure you leave a like or leave a comment and how you felt. And we will see you again next time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.